0: This episode is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. Keep your feet warm this winter with some bunny slippers from BunnySlippers.com. Look cool like Chris Knight from Real Genius. You know what? They've got all kinds of cool slippers, all kinds of novelty slippers of all sorts. If you like horror movies, they've got horror movie stuff. If you like fantasy, you like science fiction, they've got that. They've got sports stuff. They've got all kinds of stuff. They've got slippers you can plug into USB things. Anyway. Bunnieslippers.com. They are the sponsor of the show. And if you live someplace like in Australia, New Zealand, someplace where it's warm this time of year, they've got cool t-shirts at founditemclothing.com. Check out founditemclothing.com. I'm wearing one right now. can't see it, but it's, it's uh, a shirt that Jeff Bridges wears in the Big Lebowski. Check it out. It's pretty cool. Based off of a Japanese baseball t-shirt. Anyway, so... Uh, this month, we're going to be doing Jack London stories, so check that out. And there will be part of the calendar and what will be coming out listed in the show notes, so check that out right now. And also, why not check out Dave's Corner of the Universe.com? It's Dave's Corner. You've heard him on the podcast, you'll hear him in an upcoming thing that we're doing about. Underground secret bases and fan fiction and cool things like that. Um, Listen for the episode uh, of, uh, I think it's D U G S, uh, Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans. Check that out when it becomes available. I'll be hosting the first few episodes, of course, on this feed, so you can always check that out or chuck it out. And, you know, it's your podcast feed. Trim it how you feel. Anyway, uh, money for the shows, various shows. We'll get them their own podcast feeds if you want to listen to PGTTCM just by itself or Black Clock Audio Tales just by itself. Zach Ferguson has his own, but occasionally we're going to throw out Articulate Warblers. And also probably we're going to have some of the shows by Dave from Dave. And hopefully he'll still do some Dave's Corner of the Universe stuff for us, but you know... I love producing podcasts, so if you've got a podcast idea, track me down, and we'll do something, especially if you're in the Portland metro area. Um, I, I'm working with Zach, and he's over in Brighton, England, and, you know, it's working out so far so good. But yeah, no, uh, let us know if you got something that would be of interest to us. So yeah, on with some Jack London. Here we go. And why not check out Monster Kid Radio? and keep an eye and an ear out for twisted pulp. Twisted Pulp. Here we go, Jack London, right now.
1: Sea Wolf by Jack London, chapter 27. Day broke, gray and chill. The boat was close hauled on a fresh breeze, and the compass indicated that we were just making the course which would bring us to Japan. Though stoutly mittened, my fingers were cold and they pained from the grip on the steering oar. My feet were stinging from the bite of the frost, and I hoped fervently that the sun would shine. Before me in the bottom of the boat lay Maud. She at least was warm, for under her and over her were thick blankets. The top one I had drawn over her face to shelter it from the night, so I could see nothing but the vague shape of her and her light brown hair escaped from the covering and jeweled with moisture from the air. Long I looked at her, dwelling upon that one visible bit of her as only a man would who deemed it the most precious thing in the world. So insistent was my gaze that, at last, she stirred under the blankets. The top fold was thrown back, and she smiled out at me, her eyes yet heavy with sleep. Good morning, Mr. Van Weyden, she said. Have you sighted land yet? No, I answered, but we are approaching it at a rate of six miles an hour. She made a move of disappointment. But that is equivalent to 144 miles in 24 hours, I added reassuringly. Her face brightened. And how far have we to go? Siberia lies off there, I said, pointing to the west. But to the southwest, some six hundred miles is Japan. If this wind should hold, we'll make it in five days. And if it storms? The boat could not live. She had a way of looking one in the eyes and demanding the truth, and thus she looked at me as she asked this question. It would have to storm very hard, I temporized. And if it storms very hard? I nodded my head. But we may be picked up any moment by a sealing schooner. They are plentifully distributed over this part of the ocean." "'Why, you are chilled through,' she cried. "'Look, you are shivering. Don't deny it, you are. And here I have been lying warm as toast.' "'I don't see that it would help matters if you too sat up and were chilled,' I laughed. "'It will, though, when I learn to steer, which I certainly shall. She sat up and began making her simple toilet. She shook down her hair and it fell about her in a brown cloud, hiding her face and shoulders. Dear damp brown hair, I wanted to kiss it, to ripple it through my fingers, to bury my face in it. I gazed entranced till the boat ran into the wind and the flapping sail warned me I was not attending to my duties idealist and romanticist that I was and always had been in spite of my analytical nature, yet I had failed till now in grasping much of the physical characteristics of love. The love of man and woman I had always held was a sublimated something related to spirit, a spiritual bond that linked and drew their souls together. The bonds of the flesh had little part in my cosmos of love. But I was learning the sweet lesson for myself, that the soul transmuted itself, expressed itself through the flesh, that the sight and sense and touch of the loved one's hair was as much breath and voice and essence of the spirit as the light that shone from the eyes and the thoughts that fell from the lips. After all, pure spirit was unknowable, a thing to be sensed and divined only, nor could it express itself in terms of itself. Jehovah was anthropomorphic because he could address himself to the Jews only in terms of their understanding. So he was conceived as in their own image, as a cloud, a pillar of fire, a tangible physical something which the mind of the Israelites could grasp. And so I gazed upon Maud's light brown hair and loved it, and learned more of love than all the poets and singers had taught me with all their songs and sonnets. She flung it back with a sudden adroit movement, and her face emerged smiling. Why don't women wear their hair down always? I asked. It's so much more beautiful. If it didn't tangle so dreadfully, she laughed. There, I've lost one of my precious hairpins. I neglected the boat and had the sail spilling the wind again and again. Such was my delight in following her every movement as she searched through the blankets for the pin. I was surprised, and joyfully, that she was so much the woman, and the display of each trait and mannerism that was characteristically feminine gave me keener joy. For I had been elevating her too highly in my concepts of her, removing her too far from the plane of the human, and too far from me. I had been making of her a creature goddess-like and unapproachable. So I hailed with delight the little traits that proclaimed her only woman after all, such as the toss of the head which flung back the cloud of hair and the search for the pin. She was woman, my kind, on my plane, and the delightful intimacy of kind, of man and woman, was possible as well as the reverence and awe in which I knew I should always hold her. She found the pin with an adorable little cry, and I turned my attention more fully to the steering. I proceeded to experiment, lashing and wedging the steering oar, until the boat held on fairly well by the wind without my assistance. Occasionally it came up too close or fell off too freely, but it always recovered itself and, in the end, behaved satisfactorily. And now we shall have breakfast, I said. But first, you must be more warmly clad. I got out a heavy shirt, new from the slop chest and made from blanket goods. I knew the kind, so thick and so close of texture that it could resist the rain and not be soaked through after hours of wetting. When she had slipped this on over her head, I exchanged the boy's cap she wore for a man's cap, large enough to cover her hair, and when the flap was turned down, to completely cover her neck and ears. The effect was charming. Her face was of the sort that cannot but look well under all circumstances. Nothing could destroy its exquisite oval, its well-nigh classic lines, its delicately stenciled brows its large brown eyes, clear-seeing and calm, gloriously calm. A puff, slightly stronger than usual, struck us just then. The boat was caught as it obliquely crossed the crest of a wave. It went over suddenly, burying its gunwale level with the sea and shipping a bucketful or so of water. I was opening a can of tongue at the moment, and I sprang to the sheet and cast it off just in time. The sail flapped and fluttered, and the boat paid off. A few minutes of regulating sufficed to put it on its course again when I returned to the preparation of breakfast. It does very well, it seems, though I am not versed in things nautical, she said, nodding her head with grave approval at my steering contrivance. But it will only serve when we are sailing by the wind, I explained. When running more freely, or with the wind astern, a beam, or on the quarter, it will be necessary for me to steer." "'I must say, I don't understand your technicalities,' she said. "'But I do your conclusion, and I don't like it. You cannot steer night and day and forever, so I shall expect after breakfast to receive my first lesson. And then you shall lie down and sleep. We'll stand watches, just as they do on ships.' "'I don't see how I'm to teach you,' I made protest. I am just learning for myself. You little thought when you trusted yourself to me that I had no experience whatever with small boats. This is the first time I have ever been in one. Then we'll learn together, sir, and since you've had a night's start, you will teach me what you have learned. And now breakfast. My, this air does give one an appetite. No coffee. I said regretfully, passing her buttered tea biscuits and a slice of canned tongue. There will be no tea, no soups, nothing hot, till we have made land somewhere, somehow. After the simple breakfast, capped with a cup of cold water, Maud took her lesson in steering. In teaching her, I learned quite a deal myself, though I was applying the knowledge already acquired by sailing the ghost and by watching the boat steers sail the small boats. She was an apt pupil and soon learned to keep the course to luff in the puffs and to cast off the sheet in an emergency having grown tired apparently of the task she relinquished the oar to me i had folded up the blankets but now she proceeded to spread them out on the bottom when all was arranged snugly she said now sir to bed and you shall sleep until luncheon until dinner time she corrected remembering the arrangement on the ghost What could I do? She insisted and said, please, please, whereupon I turned the oar over to her and obeyed. I experienced a positive, sensuous delight as I crawled into the bed she had made with her hands. The calm and control which were so much a part of her seemed to have been communicated to the blankets so that I was aware of a soft dreaminess and content and of an oval face and brown eyes framed in a fisherman's cap, and tossing against a background, now of gray cloud, now of gray sea. And then I was aware that I had been asleep. I looked at my watch. It was one o'clock. I had slept seven hours, and she had been steering seven hours. When I took the steering oar, I had first to unbend her cramped fingers. Her modicum of strength had been exhausted. And she was unable even to move from her position. "'I was compelled to let go the sheet "'while I helped her to the nest of blankets "'and chafed her hands and arms. "'I am so tired,' she said with a quick intake of the breath "'and a sigh, drooping her head wearily. "'But she straightened it the next moment. "'Now don't scold! Don't you dare scold!' "'She cried with mock defiance.' I hope my face does not appear angry, I answered seriously, for I assure you I am not in the least angry. No, she considered, it looks only reproachful. Then it is an honest face, for it looks what I feel. You were not fair to yourself, nor to me. How can I ever trust you again? She looked penitent. I'll be good, she said as a naughty child might say it, I promise. To obey as a sailor would obey his captain? Yes, she answered. It was stupid of me, I know. Then you must promise something else, I ventured. Readily. That you will not say, please, please, too often. For when you do, you are sure to override my authority. She laughed with amused appreciation. She too had noticed the power of the repeated please. It is a good word, I began. But I must not overwork it, she broke in. But she laughed weakly, and her head drooped again. I left the oar long enough to tuck the blankets about her feet and to pull a single fold across her face. Alas, she was not strong. I looked with misgiving toward the southwest and thought of the 600 miles of hardship before us. I, if it were no worse than hardship, On this sea a storm might blow up at any moment and destroy us, and yet I was unafraid. I was without confidence in the future, extremely doubtful, and yet I felt no underlying fear. It must come right, it must come right, I repeated to myself over and over again. The wind freshened in the afternoon, raising a stiffer sea and trying the boat and me severely. But the supply of food and the nine breakers of water enabled the boat to stand up to the sea and wind, and I held on as long as I dared. Then I removed the sprit, tightly hauling down the peak of the sail, and we raced along under what sailors call a leg of mutton. Late in the afternoon, I sighted a steamer smoke on the horizon to Leeward, and I knew it either for a Russian cruiser or, more likely, the Macedonia, still seeking the ghost. The sun had not shone all day, and it had been bitter cold. As night drew on, the clouds darkened and the wind freshened, so that when Maud and I ate supper, it was with our mittens on, and with me still steering, and eating morsels between puffs. By the time it was dark, wind and sea had become too strong for the boat, and I reluctantly took in the sail and set about making a drag or sea anchor. I had learned of the device from the talk of the hunters, and it was a simple thing to manufacture. Furling the sail and lashing it securely about the mast, boom, sprit, and two pairs of spare oars, I threw it overboard. A line connected it with the bow. And as it floated low in the water, practically unexposed to the wind, it drifted less rapidly than the boat. In consequence, it held the boat bow onto the sea and wind, the safest position in which to escape being swamped when the sea is breaking into whitecaps. And now, Maud asked cheerfully, when the task was accomplished and I pulled on my mittens, and now we are no longer traveling toward Japan, I answered. Our drift is to the southeast, or south-southeast, at the rate of at least two miles an hour. That will be only 24 miles, she urged, if the wind remains high all night. Yes, and only 140 miles, if it continues for three days and nights. But it won't continue, she said with easy confidence. It will turn around and blow fair. The sea is the great faithless one. But the wind, she retorted. I have heard you grow eloquent over the brave trade wind. Wish I had thought to bring Wolf Larsen's chronometer and sextant, I said, still gloomily. Sailing one direction, drifting another direction, to say nothing of the set of the current in some third direction makes a resultant which dead reckoning can never calculate. Before long, we won't know where we are by 500 miles. Then I begged her pardon and promised I should not be disheartened more. At her solicitation, I let her take the watch till midnight. It was then 9 o'clock, but I wrapped her in blankets and put an oilskin about her before I lay down. I slept only catnaps. The boat was leaping and pounding as it fell over the crests. I could hear the seas rushing past, and spray was continually being thrown aboard. And still, it was not a bad night, I mused. Nothing to the nights I had been through on the ghost. Nothing, perhaps, to the nights we should go through in this cockle shell. Its planking was three-quarters of an inch thick between us and the bottom of the sea was less than an inch of wood. And yet, I aver it, and I aver it again, I was unafraid. The death which Wolf Larsen and even Thomas Mugridge had made me fear, I no longer feared. The coming of Maud Brewster into my life seemed to have transformed me. After all, I thought, it is better and finer to love than to be loved if it makes something in life so worthwhile that one is not loath to die for it i forget my own life in the love of another life and yet such is the paradox i never wanted so much to live as right now when i place the least value upon my own life i never had so much reason for living was my concluding thought and after that until i dozed I contented myself with trying to pierce the darkness to where I knew Maud crouched low in the stern sheets, watching of the foaming sea, and ready to call me on an instant's notice. End of chapter 27 There is no need of going into an extended recital of our suffering in this small boat during the many days we were driven and drifted here and there, willy-nilly, across the ocean. The high wind blew from the northwest for 24 hours when it fell calm, and in the night sprang up from the southwest. This was dead in our teeth, but I took in the sea anchor and set sail, hauling a course on the wind which took us in a south-southeasterly direction. It was an even choice between this and the west-northwesterly course which the wind permitted, But the warm airs of the South fanned my desire for a warmer sea, and swayed my decision. In three hours, it was midnight, I well remember, and as dark as I had ever seen it on the sea, the wind, still blowing out of the Southwest, rose furiously, and once again I was compelled to set the sea anchor. Day broke and found me one-eyed, and the ocean lashed white, the boat pitching almost on end to its drag. We were in imminent danger of being swamped by the whitecaps. As it was, spray and spume came aboard in such quantities that I bailed without cessation. The blankets were soaking, everything was wet except Maud, and she, in oilskins, rubber boots and sou'wester, was dry, all but her face and hands, and a stray wisp of hair. She relieved me at the bailing hole from time to time, and bravely she threw out the water and faced the storm. All things are relative. It was no more than a stiff blow, but to us, fighting for life in our frail craft, it was indeed a storm. Cold and cheerless, the wind beating on our faces, the white seas roaring by, we struggled through the day. Night came, but neither of us slept. Day came, and still the wind beat on our faces and the white seas roared past. By the second night, Maud was falling asleep from exhaustion. I covered her with oilskins and a tarpaulin. She was comparatively dry, but she was numb from the cold. I feared greatly that she might die in the night, but day broke, cold and cheerless, with the same clouded sky and beating wind and roaring seas. I had had no sleep for 48 hours. I was wet and chilled to the marrow till I felt more dead than alive. My body was stiff from exertion as well as from cold, and my aching muscles gave me the severest torture whenever I used them, and I used them continually. And all the time we were being driven off into the northeast, directly away from Japan and toward bleak bearing Sea. And still we lived, and the boat lived, and the wind blew unabated. In fact, toward nightfall of the third day, it increased a trifle and something more. The boat's bow plunged under a crest, and we came through a quarter full of water. I bailed like a madman. The liability of shipping another such sea was enormously increased by the water that weighed the boat down and robbed it of its buoyancy. And another such sea meant the end. When I had the boat empty again, I was forced to take away the tarpaulin which covered Maud in order that I might lash it down across the bow. It was well I did for it covered the boat fully a third of the way aft and three times in the next several hours it flung off the bulk of the downrushing water when the bow shoved under the seas. Maud's condition was pitiable. She sat crouched in the bottom of the boat, her lips blue, her face gray and plainly showing the pain she suffered. But ever her eyes looked bravely at me and ever her lips uttered brave words. The worst of the storm must have blown that night, though little I noticed it. I had succumbed and slept where I sat in the stern sheets. The morning of the fourth day found the wind diminished to a gentle whisper, the sea dying down and the sun shining upon us. Oh, the blessed sun, how we bathed our poor bodies in its delicious warmth, reviving like bugs and crawling things after a storm. We smiled again, said amusing things, and waxed optimistic over our situation. Yet it was, if anything, worse than ever. We were farther from Japan than the night we left the ghost. Nor could I more than roughly guess our latitude and longitude. At a calculation of a two-mile drift per hour during the 70 and odd hours of the storm, we had been driven at least 150 miles to the northeast. But was such calculated drift correct? For all I knew, it might have been four miles per hour instead of two, in which case we were another 150 miles to the bad. Where we were I did not know. Though there was quite a likelihood that we were in the vicinity of the ghost. There were seals about us, and I was prepared to sight a sealing schooner at any time. We did sight one in the afternoon when the northwest breeze had sprung up freshly once more. But the strange schooner lost itself on the skyline, and we alone occupied the circle of the sea. Came days of fog, when even Maud's spirit drooped, and there were no merry words upon her lips. Days of calm, when we floated on the lonely immensity of sea, oppressed by its greatness, and yet, marveling at the miracle of tiny life, for we still lived and struggled to live. Days of sleet and wind and snow squalls, when nothing could keep us warm or days of drizzling rain when we filled our water-breakers from the drip of the wet sail. And ever I loved Maud with an increasing love. She was so many-sided, so many-mooted. Protean-mooted, I called her. But I called her this and other and dearer things in my thoughts only. Though the declaration of my love urged and trembled upon my tongue a thousand times, I knew that it was no time for such a declaration, if for no other reason it was no time when one was protecting and trying to save a woman to ask that woman for her love. Delicate as was the situation, not alone in this, but in other ways, I flattered myself that I was able to deal delicately with it, and also I flattered myself that by look or sign I gave no advertisement of the love I felt for her. We were like good comrades, and we grew better comrades as the days went by. One thing about her which surprised me was her lack of timidity and fear. The terrible sea, the frail boat, the storms, the suffering, the strangeness and isolation of the situation. All that should have frightened a robust woman seemed to make no impression upon her who had known life only in its most sheltered and consummately artificial aspects, and who was herself all fire and dew and mist, sublimated spirit, all that was soft and tender and clinging in woman. And yet I am wrong. She was timid and afraid, but she possessed courage. The flesh and the qualms of the flesh she was heir to. The flesh bore heavily only on the flesh, and she was spirit. First and always spirit, etherealized essence of life, calm as her calm eyes, and sure of permanence in the changing order of the universe. Came days of storm, days and nights of storm, when the ocean menaced us with its roaring whiteness and the wind smote our struggling boat with a titan's buffets and ever we were flung off farther and farther to the northeast. It was in such a storm, and the worst that we had experienced, that I cast a weary glance to leeward, not in quest of anything, but more from the weariness of facing the elemental strife, and in mute appeal almost to the wrathful powers to cease and let us be. What I saw I could not at first believe. Days and nights of sleeplessness and anxiety had doubtless turned my head. I looked back at Maud to identify myself as it were in time and space. The sight of her dear wet cheeks, her flying hair, and her brave brown eyes convinced me that my vision was still healthy. Again, I turned my face to leeward. And again I saw the jutting promontory, black and high and naked, the raging surf that broke about its base and beat its front high up with spouting fountains, the black and forbidden coastline running toward the southeast and fringed with a tremendous scarf of white. "'Maud!' I said. "'Maud!' She turned her head and beheld the sight. "'It cannot be Alaska!' she cried. Alas, no, I answered, and asked, Can you swim? She shook her head. Neither can I, I said. So we must get ashore without swimming, in some opening between the rocks through which we can drive the boat and clamber out. But we must be quick, most quick, and sure. I spoke with a confidence she knew I did not feel, for she looked at me with that unfaltering gaze of hers and said, I have not thanked you yet for all you have done for me, but... She hesitated as if in doubt how best to warrant her gratitude. Well, I said brutally, for I was not quite pleased with her thanking me. You might help me, she smiled, to acknowledge your obligations before you die? Not at all. We are not going to die. We shall land on that island, and we shall be snug and sheltered before the day is done. I spoke stoutly, but I did not believe a word, nor was I prompted to lie through fear. I felt no fear, though I was sure of death in that boiling surge amongst the rocks which was rapidly growing nearer. It was impossible to hoist sail and claw off that shore. The wind would instantly capsize the boat. The seas would swamp it the moment it fell into the trough. And besides, the sail, lashed to the spare oars, dragged in the sea ahead of us. As I say, I was not afraid to meet my own death there a few hundred yards to leeward, but I was appalled at the thought that Maud must die. My cursed imagination saw her beaten and mangled against the rocks, and it was too terrible. I strove to compel myself to think we would make the landing safely, and so I spoke not what I believed, but what I preferred to believe. I recoiled before contemplation of that frightful death, and for a moment I entertained the wild idea of seizing Maud in my arms and leaping overboard then I resolved to wait and at the very last moment when we entered on the final stretch to take her in my arms and proclaim my love and with her in my embrace to make the desperate struggle and die. Instinctively we drew together closer in the bottom of the boat. I felt her mittened hand come out to mine and thus without speech we waited the end. We were not far off the line the wind made with the western edge of the promontory, and I watched in the hope that some set of the current or send of the sea would drift us past before we reached the surf. We shall go clear, I said, with a confidence which I knew deceived neither of us. By God, we will go clear, I cried five minutes later. The oath left my lips in my excitement. The first I do believe in my life, unless trouble it, an expletive of my youth, be accounted an oath. I beg your pardon, I said. You have convinced me of your sincerity, she said with a faint smile. I do know now that we shall go clear. I had seen a distant headland past the extreme edge of the promontory, and as we looked we could see grow the intervening coastline of what was evidently a deep cove. At the same time, there broke upon our ears a continuous and mighty bellowing. It partook of the magnitude and volume of distant thunder, and it came to us directly from leeward, rising above the crash of the surf, traveling directly in the teeth of the storm. As we passed the point, the whole cove burst upon our view, a half-moon of white sandy beach upon which broke a huge surf and which was covered with myriads of seals. It was from them that the great bellowing went up. A rookery, I cried. Now we are indeed saved. There must be men and cruisers to protect them from the seal hunters. Possibly there is a station ashore. But as I studied the surf which beat upon the beach, I said, Still bad, but not so bad. And now, if the gods be truly kind, we shall drift by that next headland and come upon a perfectly sheltered beach, where we may land without wetting our feet. And the gods were kind. The first and second headlands were directly in line with the southwest wind, but once around the second, and we went perilously near, we picked up the third headland, still in line with the wind and with the other two. But the cove that intervened, it penetrated deep into the land, and the tide setting in drifted us under the shelter of the point. Here the sea was calm save for a heavy but smooth ground soil. and I took in the sea anchor and began to row. From the point, the shore curved away more and more to the south and west, until at last it disclosed a cove within the cove, a little landlocked harbor, the water level as a pond. Broken only by tiny ripples, where vagrant breaths and wisps of the storm hurtled down from over the frowning wall of rock that backed the beach, a hundred feet inshore. Here were no seals whatever. The boat's stern touched the hard shingle. I sprang out, extending my hand to Maud. The next moment, she was beside me. As my fingers released hers, she clutched for my arm hastily. At the same moment I swayed, as about to fall to the sand. This was the startling effect of the cessation of motion. We had been so long upon the moving rocking sea, that the stable land was a shock to us. We expected the beach to lift up this way and that, and the rocky walls to swing back and forth like the sides of a ship. And when we braced ourselves automatically for these various expected movements, their non-occurrence quite overcame our equilibrium. I really must sit down, Maud said with a nervous laugh and a dizzy gesture, and forthwith she sat down on the sand. I attended to making the boat secure and joined her. Thus we landed on Endeavour Island as we came to it land sick from long custom of the sea. End of chapter 28. Domain The Sea Wolf by Jack London. Chapter 29 Fool! I cried aloud in my vexation. I had unloaded the boat and carried its contents high up on the beach, where I had set about making a camp. There was driftwood, though not much, on the beach, and the sight of a coffee tin I had taken from the ghost larder had given me the idea of fire. Blithering idiot, I was continuing. But Maud said, tut tut, in gentle reproval, and then asked why I was a blithering idiot. No matches, I groaned. Not a match did I bring, and now we shall have no hot coffee, soup, tea, or anything. Wasn't it, uh, Crusoe who rubbed sticks together? She drawled. But I have read the personal narratives of a score of shipwrecked men who tried and tried in vain, I answered. I remember Winters, a newspaper fellow with an Alaskan and Siberian reputation, met him at the Bibble at once, and he was telling us how he attempted to make a fire with a couple of sticks. It was most amusing. He told it inimitably, but... It was the story of a failure. I remember his conclusion, his black eyes flashing, as he said, Gentlemen, the South Sea Islander may do it, the Malay may do it, but take my word, it is beyond the white man. Oh well, we've managed so far without it, she said cheerfully, and there is no reason why we cannot still manage without it. But think of the coffee, I cried. It's good coffee, too, I know. I took it from Larson's private stores, and look at that good wood. I confess I wanted the coffee badly, and I learned not long afterward that the berry was likewise a little weakness of Maud's. Besides, we had been so long on a cold diet that we were numb inside as well as out. Anything warm would have been most gratifying but I complained no more and set about making a tent of the sail for Maud. I had looked upon it as a simple task, what of the oars, mast, boom, and sprit, to say nothing of plenty of lines. But as I was without experience and as every detail was an experiment and every successful detail an invention, the day was well gone before her shelter was an accomplished fact. And then that night it rained, and she was flooded out and driven back into the boat. The next morning, I dug a shallow ditch around the tent, and an hour later, a sudden gust of wind whipping over the rocky wall behind us picked up the tent and smashed it down on the sand 30 yards away. Maud laughed at my crestfallen expression, and I said, as soon as the wind abates, I intend going in the boat to explore the island. There must be a station somewhere, and men, and ships must visit the station. Some government must protect all these seals. But I wish to have you comfortable before I start. I should like to go with you, was all she said. It would be better if you remained. You have had enough of hardship. It is a miracle that you have survived, and it won't be comfortable in the boat rowing and sailing in this rainy weather." "'What you need is rest, and I should like you to remain and get it.' "'Something suspiciously akin to moistness dimmed her beautiful eyes "'before she dropped them and partly turned away her head. "'I should prefer going with you,' she said in a low voice, "'in which there was just a hint of appeal. "'I might be able to help you,' uh... her voice broke. "'A little, and if anything should happen to you, "'think of me left here alone.' Oh, I intend being very careful, I answered, and I shall not go so far but what I can get back before night. Yes, all said and done, I think it vastly better for you to remain and sleep and rest and do nothing. She turned and looked me in the eyes. Her gaze was unfaltering, but soft. Please, please, she said, oh, so softly. I stiffened myself to refuse and shook my head. Still, she waited and looked at me. I tried to word my refusal, but wayward. I saw the glad light spring into her eyes and knew that I had lost. It was impossible to say no after that. The wind died down in the afternoon, and we were prepared to start the following morning. There was no way of penetrating the island from our cove, for the walls rose perpendicularly from the beach, and on either side of the cove rose from the deep water. Morning broke dull and gray, but calm, and I was awake early and had the boat in readiness. Fool! Imbecile! Yahoo! I shouted, when I thought it was meet to arouse Maud. But this time I shouted in merriment as I danced about the beach bareheaded in mock despair. Her head appeared under the flap of the sail. What now? she asked sleepily, and withal curiously. Coffee, I cried. What do you say to a cup of coffee? Hot coffee. Piping hot. My, she murmured. You startled me, and you are cruel. Here I have been composing my soul to do without it, and here you are vexing me with your vain suggestions. Watch me, I said. From under the cliffs among the rocks, I gathered a few dry sticks and chips. These I whittled into shavings or split into kindling. From my notebook, I tore out a page, and from the ammunition box took a shotgun shell. Removing the wads from the latter with my knife, I emptied the powder on a flat rock. Next, I pried the primer, or cap, from the shell and laid it on the rock, in the midst of the scattered powder. All was ready. Maud still watched from the tent. Holding the paper in my left hand, I smashed down upon the cap with a rock held in my right. There was a puff of white smoke, a burst of flame, and the rough edge of the paper was alight. Maud clapped her hands gleefully. ''Prometheus!'' she cried. But I was too occupied to acknowledge her delight. The feeble flame must be cherished tenderly if it were to gather strength and live. I fed it, shaving by shaving and sliver by sliver, till at last it was snapping and crackling as it laid hold of the smaller chips and sticks. To be cast away on an island had not entered into my calculations, so we were without a kettle or cooking utensils of any sort but I made shift with the tin used for baling the boat, and later, as we consumed our supply of canned goods, we accumulated quite an imposing array of cooking vessels. I boiled the water, but it was Maud who made the coffee. And how good it was! My contribution was canned beef fried with crumbled sea biscuit and water. The breakfast was a success, and we sat about the fire much longer than enterprising explorers should have done sipping the hot black coffee and talking over our situation i was confident that we should find a station in some one of the coves for i knew that the rookeries of bering sea were thus guarded but Maud advanced the theory to prepare me for disappointment i do believe if disappointment were to come that we had discovered an unknown rookery she was in very good spirits however and made quite merry in accepting our plight as a grave one If you are right, I said, then we must prepare to winter here. Our food will not last, but there are the seals. They go away in the fall, so I must soon begin to lay in a supply of meat. Then there will be huts to build and driftwood to gather. Also, we shall try out seal fat for lighting purposes. Altogether, we'll have our hands full if we find the island uninhabited, which we shall not, I know. But she was right. We sailed with a beam wind along the shore, searching the coves with our glasses and landing occasionally, without finding a sign of human life. Yet we learned that we were not the first who had landed on Endeavor Island. High up on the beach of the second cove from ours, we discovered the splintered wreck of a boat, a sealer's boat for the rowlocks were bound in Senate, a gun rack was on the starboard side of the bow, and in white letters was faintly visible Gazelle No. 2. The boat had lain there for a long time, for it was half filled with sand, and the splintered wood had that weather-worn appearance due to long exposure to the elements. In the stern sheets I found a rusty ten-gauge shotgun and a sailor's sheath knife, broken short across, and so rusted as to be almost unrecognizable. They got away, I said cheerfully, but I felt a sinking at the heart and seemed to divine the presence of bleached bones somewhere on that beach. I did not wish Maud's spirits to be dampened by such a fine, so I turned seaward again with our boat and skirted the northeastern point of the island. There were no beaches on the southern shore, and by the early afternoon we rounded the black promontory and completed the circumnavigation of the island. I estimated its circumference at 25 miles, its width as varying from 2 to 5 miles, while my most conservative calculation placed on its beaches 200,000 seals. The island was highest at its extreme southwestern point, the headlands and backbone diminishing regularly until the northeastern portion was only a few feet above the sea. With the exception of our little cove, the other beaches sloped gently back for a distance of half a mile or so into what I might call rocky meadows, with here and there patches of moss and tundra grass. Here the seals hauled out, and the old bulls guarded their harems, while the young bulls hauled out by themselves. This brief description is all that Endeavor Island merits. Damp and soggy, where it was not sharp and rocky, buffeted by storm winds and lashed by the sea, with the air continually a-tremble with the bellowing of two hundred thousand amphibians, it was a melancholy and miserable sojourning place. Maud, who had prepared me for disappointment, and who had been sprightly and vivacious all day, broke down as we landed in our own little cove. She strove bravely to hide it from me, but while I was kindling another fire, I knew she was stifling her sobs in the blankets under the sail tent. It was my turn to be cheerful. And I played the part to the best of my ability, and with such success that I brought the laughter back into her dear eyes and song on her lips, for she sang to me before she went to an early bed. It was the first time I had heard her sing, and I lay by the fire, listening and transported, for she was nothing if not an artist in everything she did, and her voice, though not strong, was wonderfully sweet and expressive. I still slept in the boat, and I lay awake long that night, gazing up at the first stars I had seen in many nights and pondering the situation. Responsibility of this sort was a new thing to me. Wolf Larson had been quite right. I had stood on my father's legs. My lawyers and agents had taken care of my money for me. I had had no responsibilities at all. Then, on the ghost, I had learned to be responsible for myself. And now, for the first time in my life, I found myself responsible for someone else. And it was required of me that this should be the gravest of responsibilities, for she was the one woman in the world. The one small woman, as I love to think of her. End of chapter 29